are going to continue in our series today through the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bible, your scriptural, scripture journal, or if you're using your phone, go ahead and pull that out. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're going to look at verses 24 through 37 today. Well, as you are turning there, some of you guys know this, um, but my family just walked through one of the toughest weeks of our life. Two weeks ago, on Tuesday, April the 27th, Lee and I were getting ready for bed, and I got a phone call from my sister, my twin sister. Uh, my, my sister rarely calls that late, and so initially we knew something was wrong, and my sister proceeded to, to, to tell us this, and she said, John, you guys need to begin praying. Colson, my 16-year-old nephew, has been in a bad car wreck, and it doesn't look good. And so me in shock, Lee with tears rolling down her eyes, we began to pray. And it wasn't 15 minutes later when my sister called back and said, weeping, he didn't make it. 16-year-olds are not supposed to die. My, my sister, my older sister, is not supposed to be buying a burial plot for her 16-year-old and picking out the casket and planning a funeral service. And so as we processed that news pretty, pretty quickly, we decided that we were going to wake the kids up, throw them in the car, and start driving. Those of you that know me also know that I'm really close to my family. Um, I grew up in the North Carolina, South Carolina area. We're in Boston, not because we don't like our family. Um, we're in Boston because this is where God sent us. Um, and one of the sacrifices that we've had to lay down is, is proximity to our family. But I'm really close with my twin sister, my older brother, and my older sister. In fact, we all vacation together at least once or twice a year. We'll be gathering together next month. Um, all of the cousins are really close. So this 16-year-old is just one year older than Ava, who's sitting back here. Um, both of my boys really looked up to Colson. Why, why am I sharing all of this with you? Um, uh, and it's not to just, I'm not inviting sympathy. Um, I, I share this with you. Colson had a special place in his heart for Boston. As we traveled down and, and weeped and grieved with family, um, they asked me to be a part of, of preaching at his funeral. And so as, as long as I've known Colson, he's always been a Boston Celtics fan. Can I get a shout out? Let's go. Hey, um, like he, you know, he stuck out like a sore thumb in South Carolina wearing all of his Celtics gear. Um, but here's what you should know about Colson. Colson was a part of a church that was one of our first supporting churches. He came up here with his family on a mission trip in 2011 and passed out hundreds of door hangers inviting people to our opening worship service. Colson has been up multiple times. He, he last worshiped with us two years ago. He sat in these very chairs on a Good Friday service and an Easter with us here. My older sister was here one month ago. You might have seen her, Allison and Kevin, my older sister and her brother-in-law, Colson's mom and dad, worshiped with us one month ago. The reason we took our family and we made a quick decision, but I know there's a temptation at times, and I know, hey, I'm jumping in really deep here, right? So you guys will just bear with me. But I want, it, I want us to hit home here. 
I wanted, like there's a temptation for us to put off death and pretend like it doesn't exist. Like let's just, let's just love the Celtics, the Sox, and the Patriots. Let's pour ourselves into our job. Let's pour ourselves into our kids' lives. And you can be so busy in life that like the thought of death just seems like a distance. And yet when a 16-year-old dies, it's a reminder that time is in his hands. We just sang the song. And so we traveled. I wanted my kids to be with us because I wanted them to experience what does it look like for me to wrap my arms around my sister and weep with my sister and my brother-in-law? And what does it look like to grieve and to see just the brokenness of the world that we live in? But I also wanted them to be reminded that nothing is guaranteed in life. Some of these scriptures have been coming to my mind over the past few weeks. James 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Or this from the psalmist, Psalm 39, 4, O Lord, make me know that my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. We need to be praying those prayers. God, would you make the reality of death? None of us will escape that. I wanted my kids to know, one, you're not in control. The length of our days, there's nothing like what happened to Colson could happen to any one of us today. It was just a freak accident. You know, at times you can chalk it up and say, if this, this, this were happened, it was just a freak accident, and he's gone. None of us are in control of our days, and none of us will escape death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Spiritually and physically, we're all headed there. This is why Jesus matters. That's my point. We're not just here today because culturally, let's hang out and I've got some friends and this is where my friends are gonna be. We're here today because every single one of us experienced the effects of sin and all kinds of brokenness right now and one day facing physical death. And there are millions in Boston that are far from God and have no hope of the gospel. I've not heard about the hope of the gospel. By God's grace, we can celebrate Colson had professed faith in Jesus. And so while we grieve and we weep, we know he's in enjoying everlasting joy in the presence of God right now. This is why Mark 7 matters. Because the whole purpose of Jesus' life is to reverse the effects of sin, suffering, and death that we all experience. And we're going to see that today. So Mark chapter 7, I'm going to pick up here in verse 24. God's word says this. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside, the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Father, God, as we hear your words, God, we ask, would you open our ears that we would truly hear these as your words? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our minds? Would you work in our affections that we not just hear this, but that we're able to respond with faith today? God, would you have your way in us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. There's two main truths that I wanna draw out for us today. And the first one in this first section here that I want us to see is this. The crumbs of Jesus are sufficient to satisfy. The crumbs of Jesus are sufficient to satisfy. Let me set the context here. We see in verse 24, it says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. If, if you were flipping to the back, in the back of my Bible here, I've got um, Palestine in the time of Jesus. I've got the map here. You might have some in your Bibles. What you would see here is that this was a region north of Israel right along the coast. And so Jesus has been primarily ministering in the Galilean region. You've got um, Judea, Samaria, that Galilee, that northern region. This is even further north, up in Tyre and Sidon. Um, it is what's today modern-day Lebanon. Um, and this was a Gentile region, and it was known to be antagonistic toward Israel. We're not told why Jesus headed up there. We do have a, a, a few clues here. It said, um, and he entered the house, um, a house, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. It's possible that he was retreating with his disciples for a time of rest, or an impossibly instruction. We know like the disciples are still like trying to figure out who Jesus is and that in light of all of the crowds pressing around him, maybe he hasn't had sufficient time for instruction with them, but nevertheless, he could not be hidden. And so what it says here, it says in verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and she came and she fell down before him. Now, in both of these passages, we're going to see a healing take place. 
But the focus in this first passage is not so much on the healing as it is on this dialogue that Jesus has with this Syrophoenician woman. In fact, it's almost like a parable. It it doesn't call it a parable, um, but there's parabolic language that's being used here. Now, what do we find out about this woman in verse 26? It says, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and it says she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I love what one commentator notes. He says this, of all the people who approached Jesus in the gospel of Mark, this individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She's a woman, a Greek Gentile from infamous pagans of Syria, Phoenicia. Like, it's just stacking on here. Like, in the context of what we read last week, the scribes and the Pharisees worried about the disciples. Like, hey, they don't wash their hands and, and cleanliness. Like, there's no way they would have gotten near this woman. It's also worth noting, this is the first explicit reference to this word Gentile in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Jesus has done some work and, and we've seen with some Gentile, but he's, it's made explicit here. This was a Gentile woman. And, and as you read the scriptures, if you're new, let me just help you out here. A lot of times what you see, you see Jews and Gentiles. And it's like the Jews, God's chosen people, and then everyone else. I'm a Gentile. And, and that's, the, that's the distinction we see as we, as we learn and study God's plan of salvation here. But what we see with this encounter with this woman is that Jesus is foreshadowing the expanding scope of his mission. And we see it expanding geographically, ethnically, regards to gender and religion. It's foreshadowing. We know the day's coming where Jesus is going to tell his disciples, go make disciples among the nations. We know Acts is coming. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we have here is a foretaste. We have um, an allusion to what's to come. As we think about this woman, just continuing to like make sure we wrap our minds around this. There's nothing in this woman that would have drawn the ear of Jesus except her desperate need. I mean, I think of this, like if somebody that I don't know, I want an introduction to. This past Thursday, I was at a sin conference with a bunch of pastors from New England. Um, and, and a number from our church were here, uh, from our team. And uh, I was talking with our, uh, our Sin Boston um, leader, um, Aaron. And, and some of you guys know this. Over the summer, um, I oversee about 50 students coming to Boston um, to, 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 to do an eight-week missions immersion experience. It's called GenSend. One of those teams will be with us arriving in two weeks, our summer link team. Um, so be on the lookout for them. Um, but we do a, an equipment night on Thursday night. So I was talking with Aaron, and I was like, hey, Aaron, man, all these church planners here, like, as you look around the room, like, who do I need to put before our GenSenders? Who do I need to ask? And he's scanning the room, and he says, this guy right here. And I don't know him. Um, I've heard his name. And I, and I said this, hey, Aaron, can you come introduce me? So I go with Aaron, and Aaron, like, 
by, by the time Aaron ends up talking, there's no way this guy can say no to me because of the introduction that Aaron gave me. This woman had no introduction to Jesus. Like, she, she's coming, and there was no reason that, she, that Jesus should hear, should listen, and respond to her. Jesus doesn't see our status. He sees our neediness. One commentator, Jay Gundry Volf, says this, God's mercy responds to human need in such a way that it breaks societal patterns of exclusion. You may be excluded elsewhere, but when it comes to the gospel, it is an invitation. And that's what we see here. So how does Jesus respond? Let's look at the text here in verse 27. So it says, he said to her, this, this parabolic saying, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right, we got to unpack this here. And I want to give you, there's three words we need to, to unpack. One, we need to figure out who are the children. Second, um, what is the children's bread? And then third, who are the dogs? So first of all here, children is referring to the Jewish people. Jesus is saying, um, let the Jews be fed first. What are they fed? The children's bread is this message of the kingdom. It is Jesus who's, who's come, and he, he's inaugurating the kingdom of God. He's saying, repent and believe in the gospel. And then he continues here, for it is not right to take this message of the kingdom and throw it to the dogs. This word dogs here, typically when you, when you hear this word dog in the, in the Bible, it has a negative connotation. It has this imagery of like a wild dog that's a scavenger that's just roaming the roads and eating garbage and corpses and all kind of unclean things. We see this word dog at times used to refer to the Gentiles because of their uncleanness um, in, in light of the Jews' eyes. But like, would it be appropriate for Jesus to use this word dog as it refers to the Gentiles? Or, or when he used it, sh should we bring in all of these associations with this term that has been carried with it? Well, I wanna give you three things to consider that I think when Jesus is using this word dogs, he's not using it in, um, in, a, in necessarily a negative connotation with this lady. The first one would be this. The passage that we just studied last week, Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for uncleanness. It says, they honor me with their lips or their hearts are far from me. And so it, it would not seem right that coming right off of that where Jesus is saying basically all foods are clean to now say, hey, the Gentiles are unclean. So that, that gives me a clue here that I don't think he's using this in, in this overtly negative sense. The second reason is the Greek word for dogs used here is, is the word that's more common for a house pet. So like, you guys know Zoe and the kids, Redemption Kids, she'd been praying for a dog for years. God answered her prayer this past August. And we've got a little Coco now. Some of you guys have met Coco. Um, you, you, like, I, I don't think of Coco 
who's like a house pet. She's a part of our family now. Like, I know some of you guys have dogs like, some of you, you know, like they're just like one of your kids. Like that, that's different than you think of this, you know, this negative turn of a dog that's just roaming the streets. And, and so there's a different term that Jesus uses here. But the third reason is that the reason Jesus would have used it is, is the point that he's trying to make. Dogs signifies a traditional distinction between Jews and the Gentiles, and that's important to the story. If I were to summarize what Jesus is saying in verse 27, it might go something like this. Let the Jews have a chance to hear and respond to the gospel first, for it wouldn't be right for the gospel to spread to the Gentiles before the Jews, God's chosen people. That's in short what Jesus is telling her. Now what's amazing is that she gets it. Like, we've, we've seen parables already in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is like, you know, the, the parable of the sower. And they're like, Can't, like, I don't get And Jesus is like, do you not understand? Like, he's getting frustrated with them. And, and it's amazing here that this Gentile woman actually gets the parable. And what's it say here? It says in verse 28, but she answered to him, yes, Lord. Notice this. She doesn't challenge his statement. She says, Yes, Lord. She responds with humility yet persistence. And she says this. I love it. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What does she mean by that? What's going on here? Well, I want to unpack a few words here that I didn't unpack earlier that I think will help us understand this. Go back up to verse 27. When Jesus says this, let the children be fed, what's the word there? First. This word first here, circle it in your Bible. What's happening here is that Jesus is establishing a priority of mission. Jesus' mission must first begin with Israel. But there's also, in this word first, it implies what? There's a second, right? Like if you're going to somebody first, well then there's something happening after that. And so there's a, there's a message of hope here. For the woman, she sees hope. It implies that others will follow. The Gentiles will also become recipients of God's grace. And think about it. If this Greek word, for dogs is more referring to the house pet here. That is like these, these dogs are, are part of the household and they're gonna be fed just like the children of the household will be fed. And so this passage establishes the priority of mission without excluding other hungry mouths. It's this, the priority of mission is this, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus' mission begins with Israel, but it's not gonna be confined to Israel. When you study the Old Testament, you come across passages like this, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 verse six says this. Is it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So who is salvation for? the tribes of Jacob, and the house of Israel. But it doesn't stop there. 
I will make you as a light for the nations. And so like, why did God choose the Jews? Like first to the Jews, but God is choosing the Jews so that they would be a light that would spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. He says this, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul picks up a very similar methodology. In Romans 1.16, he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see this pattern. Go read the book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When Paul went to a new city, where did he go? He almost always went to the synagogue. The house of worship. That's where the Jews that would have been scattered would have been worshiping. And that was Paul's pattern. But we see in Acts, the guy starts in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes and it begins to spread. But then, hey, this week, go read uh, Acts chapter 10. I don't have time to unpack it here. But it's a similar parallel to our story last week. It's where Peter sees a vision of like a a sheep and all animals are on there. And God says, they're all clean. Peter, go eat. And Peter says, well, if they're all clean, then what God's teaching me is that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. And so God sends him to Cornelius and he sees the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles. And he says this, he says, um, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Think this woman right here this Syrophoenician, but he continues, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's Acts 10, 28, and and then he continues in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What we see here is a foreshadow of this mission that happens in the book of Acts. So that's what we get from that word first. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And the woman gets it. She doesn't challenge Jesus. She says, I get it, Jesus. Yes, first for the Jew, but hey, the dogs are still gonna eat the crumbs on the table. I just want some crumbs. Now check this out. Go back to that very same verse 27. And what I wanna do is I wanna show you two different translations of verse 27. I wanna show you the NET in the NIV, in the, in the NET version, it translates it this, let the children be satisfied first. Or the NIV translates it, first, let the children eat all they want. The, the, get the picture here. It's not just, as the ESV says it, let the children be fed first. It's let them eat their full. Let them eat all they want. You can't exhaust Jesus. Where else did we see this Greek word? Mark chapter six, the feeding of the 5,000, right? And what does it say there in verse 42? And they ate, uh, and they all ate and were satisfied. It it wasn't like, hey, you know what? We got a lot of people here. Um, You know, sometimes it happens, you know, when I'm in charge of food at times, it's like, man, um, hey, we got to ration this out. Um, And, but no, that's not the case. It's no rationing out with Jesus. It's come and feast. And so I love this. This passage is about the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. There's plenty to go around. The Gentiles aren't robbing the Jews. They're just eating what's theirs from the surplus of what the Jews experienced. 
the crumbs of Jesus are sufficient to satisfy the world. This woman trusts the abundance of Jesus and his message to spill over and include people like her. And this is why, if you come to next today, I'm doing a little 15-minute quick flyby of, of what Redemption Hill's about, about. You're going to hear me say this. We want to be a thumbprint of Medford. Do you know why? Because that's what Jesus is about. That's what we see in this woman here, is that, man, it is an invitation no matter geographical, ethnic, gender, like come. He's inviting people to come to receive and respond and believe in him. And so if something offends, it ought to be the gospel, but nothing else. There, we want to do ministry and we want to continue to evaluate. God, show us. If there's anything we do that offends somebody, let it be the gospel. Otherwise, we don't, we don't want to offend. We'll, we'll let Jesus do that, the message of Jesus Second truth I want to share with you in this, this last section. The compassionate touch of Jesus brings freedom and joy. Continue in verse 31. It says, Then he returned from the re region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. We've already been this, to this region one other time. Anybody remember? It's the Gerasene demoniac. The, the, the man who was demon-possessed and nobody could subdue him except for Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus told him or what happened at the very end of that story? What does he do? It says he went away and began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Jesus is back in the same area now. Who knows, maybe the reception that he's receiving now is some of the fruits of that uh, demoniac, uh, his missionary efforts in spreading the word. But that's where he's at. That's the, that's the area. And so um, in contrast to the previous passage, the emphasis here is on Jesus' healing. This is one of only three stories in the Gospel of Mark that finds no counterpart in the other Gospels. You can go look at Matthew 15, I think it's 29 through 31, which provides a, a summary statement, but not this exact healing. Um, and so what do we see here? We see here in verse 32, it says, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And so what happens? It says, and taking him aside, from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. Look, when I first read this, the silly part of me goes back to like when I was a kid and I would give my buddies like wet willies. So, so um, yeah, don't do that. That's not what's happening here. But like, uh, you know, you're thinking like, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Like, you don't, don't do this. We're social distancing. But like, you don't put your finger in somebody else's ear and you don't go and touch like their tongue. But why is he doing this? It's a symbolic act that shows that Jesus is the purifying source. But there's more here. 
Jesus is touching someone whom the Jews would have called ritually unclean. Look, let me just hit a pause. We all experience different kinds of brokenness. Some of it's physical, some of it's relational, some of it's emotional. It can be marriage life, it can be kids. I don't know what brokenness you're bringing into the room today. Jesus is drawing near to your brokenness. When I see this and I ask, what does this teach me about Jesus? Jesus identifies with the needy. Jesus' physical touch is an expression of compassion. I love what James Edwards says. Love seeks intimacy. And the touch of Jesus is a tangible prelude of the fellowship that believers experience with him through faith. Jesus isn't some distant. He is close. In fact, when you come to Jesus, the spirit of Jesus is poured out in your heart. What's it say here? It says, he put his fingers in his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue and he looked up to heaven and he sighed or he groaned. This word's only used a few other places too. One of the places is in Romans 8.23, which talks about how we long, all of creation longs for redemption, including our bodies, which groan inwardly. Like it's this picture of, of believers like, I know Jesus, but yet I'm weeping because my 16-year-old nephew's been killed. That's groaning. That's not how life is supposed to be. I long for the day where there's no more tears, pain, suffering, and death. That's the groaning that Jesus is doing here. He sighed. He groaned because he saw the effects, the physical weaknesses that have arisen on account of the fall. And what does he cry out? Be opened. And you know what happens? You know, there's an echo here of creation where God speaks and what God says happens. This is it. And God spoke it and it happened. And this is the power of the word of God. This is the power of Jesus. He said, be open. His ears were open. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. He was liberated. He was freed. Jesus' compassionate touch brings freedom. And then Jesus charges them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. We see this all through Mark, like this, like what's called the messianic secret here. And, and here's the challenge here. The, the crowds could be um, a hindrance to what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And his time had not come yet. And so, but, but what we're seeing here, and Mark's reminding us, is that increasingly, like people are hearing about Jesus and, and there's an, an Inevitably, Jesus is headed to the cross. There is going to be persecution that is to come. 
But here's how this passage ends. Verse 37. It says, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In this passage, the Greek word used in verse 32, that he had a speech impediment, occurs only one other time in the Greek Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 35, verse 6. And now here's what we need to do here. Mark is writing primarily to a Gentile audience, not writing to Jews. He's writing to an audience that would not have been overly familiar with the Old Testament. So, so we don't see a ton of Old Testament quotes in Mark. But when we do see a reference, we need to pay attention. That's the point here. And so Isaiah, like the other prophets of the Old Testament, had three main points. Repent, and if you don't repent, there's judgment, but beyond the judgment, there is hope. When we go through Isaiah, when we come to Isaiah 35, it's at the very end of this first section of Isaiah where he had been calling them, the people of Israel, to repent. He was telling them judgment is coming, but Isaiah 35 is looking beyond the judgment to a day, a day of hope. And this is what he says in Isaiah 35, verse six, 5 and 6. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then in verse 10 he continues, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Guys, this is the good news of the gospel. Sorrow and sighing is gonna flee when you come to Jesus. This is the hope we have. Look. Sixteen-year-olds are not supposed to die. I'm not supposed to go and have to weep like I did and preach at his funeral. But the hope we have in the gospel is that's going to flee in everlasting joy. I don't know of anywhere else that you can have the promise of everlasting joy. Look, you can chase after some temporal joys here in this world. But what Jesus has to offer is something that nobody can take away from you. And that is the invitation today. The point is this. Jesus brings redemption to the broken, both near and far. When Jesus healed this mute man, he was inaugurating the age to come. It was announcing what Isaiah talked about is what I am bringing. Jesus has come to reverse the effects of the fall. Do you hear that? The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute, everything is going to be reversed. Your brokenness is reversed in Jesus. That is the hope we have. He is the great reversal, and he is our only hope for this reversal. Jesus' touch powerfully reverses the effects of sin, and his compassionate touch brings freedom and joy 
to the world. As we conclude in verse 37, it says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Do you remember how Genesis 1 ends? God speaks creation to existence. And it says there was morning and there was evening. And, and then it says, and, and he saw what he had made, and, and indeed it was good. Every day, he saw that he had made, indeed it was good. At the very end of creation, in Genesis 1.31, he steps back, and God says this. He saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. What's happening here is that Jesus' work of redemption is like the Father's work in creation. It is very good with nothing left to be desired. Jesus' redemption is a new creation. New creation life and redemption is found in him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Come to him with the faith of this woman. Come to him like this mute man today and draw near and receive the hope and promise of everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that suffering and death is not the end of the story. God, we thank you that in Christ, we don't have a Savior who was removed but one who is close, who is compassionate, who is intimate, who is near. God, we thank you that when we look to Jesus, we see one who sighs and groans at the brokenness of this world. And so, God, we run to you today. God, we just pray, God, we want the joy that you've come to offer. God, we just want some crumbs. We, we want the crumbs that we trust will satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. So God, for, for those of us that are really just struggling to believe that you're good, sovereign, and wise, for, for those of us that are really in the midst of temptation and, and, and the temptations of, of the joys of this world versus the, the everlasting joy that you have to come to offer, God, God, we need you today. God, we need you to work in us. We need you to grant us faith to trust and believe today. We ask and pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.